Good morning, church. If you'd turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We're going to be starting in verse 12. Mark 11, verse 12. Now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing afar a fig, having, a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he, then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out to the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority do you do these things? And he gave And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just thank you for your word, Lord. And we just thank you for the truth that's in your word, Lord. God, we just thank you for this place where we can gather together and, uh, and learn from you, God. And I just pray that we would all hear your spirit speak to us this morning, Lord. And we pray for... Pastor Jackie, Lord, that your spirit would fill him and overflow in him, Lord, that we would leave here changed to be more like you, God. And we just thank you for your love for us and for your sacrifice, God, and just pray that we would not take that lightly and that we would uh, and live our lives as an offering poured out to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys ever have one of those weeks 
No, am I the only one that gets those? No? You guys have them too? So, so last week, Monday and Tuesday, we made this mad dash to California, right? Where there's some friends who have moved up to Idaho now. We're really excited to have them. Uh, Shannon and her daughters are all up at the retreat, but Chris is here. You want to wave, Chris? Chris, a friend of mine, we, we, we served in ministry together for like 13 years. So we're excited to have them come up here. So the move was going to be a dash, right? 12 hours to Cali, fill up a trailer, 12 hours home, get it done. <clears throat> Somehow it all started with Jason. I think he's part of, uh, of my downfall sometimes. I don't know. We decided to have a Chinese fire drill. You guys know what a Chinese fire drill is? You ever get really tired driving? So we're super tired driving and we're in the middle of the desert. So I know a shortcut from... <laughs> why y'all get nervous? I know a shortcut from Vegas to... to uh, where, where was it? Yucca Valley. And it goes straight across the desert. God forsaken desert. There's nothing there. You, see a, you might see a car once a week. So we're out there. It's like 12.30. I'm tired. And so I finally I, I, I call a Chinese fire drill. I'm done. You're driving. Stop right in the middle of the road. Get out the truck. And I go over to the other side. Jason goes around. He drives us the rest of the way in. We get to Yucca Valley and we're pulling all our stuff out so we can go to sleep can't find my phone. Want to take a guess where my phone was? You guys know that little uh, uh, find your phone app? That thing is worthless. What, what good does it do you if it finds your phone in the bottom of the ocean? Or, for example, in the middle of the road in a desert? So the last dying gr- uh, gasps of my phone, it sent out its location. Oh, Super. The next day, <coughs> I get an alert. Hey, your phone's in Yukaipa. Oh, now that seems like it's a possibility. It's moving into to civilization now. Surely I'll get my phone, right? Yeah, no. There, I must have tried 50 times to get a hold of the folks who very kindly picked up my phone and took it to their house. And I, I never could. So I have been without a phone for a week and a half. The whole point, if you've been trying to call me, uh, sorry. I finally put a message on my voicemail that said, yeah, this is Jackie. I'm an idiot. I lost my phone. <laughs> Call the church because I don't have one. And it's going to be like another four or five days. So if, you, if you're frustrated because you've been texting me like crazy and I haven't answered, now you know why. It's been one of those weeks. Those things happen, right? What about uh, uh, issues in your life and you have unanswered prayer? What about uh, having struggles of faith? Like I'm going, going through a really difficult time and you're, and you're leaning into the Lord, but, but you're having a struggle of faith. Or you're having a struggle... That's still live, bro. You're having a struggle... No? Just me? Sorry. You're having a struggle of, uh, of, of authority. What's going to be the authority in your life? See, when we come to a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have to answer those questions. And one of the biggest struggles, I think, sometimes for us as believers, is that we try to live our life like we're the authority. And I just, I just, this little note. If you're living your life as though you are the authority of your life, you haven't surrendered 
to Jesus, I don't care what you sang. If you're the authority, if you're the rule, then you're having a struggle at least in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we look at this section of scripture, that's what we see this morning as we look at the story of the fig tree. Let's take a look. It says in Mark 11 verse 12, it says, Now, the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he could find something to eat on it. When he came to it, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So in response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So what we have in the beginning of this section in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus laying out for us an object lesson before he teaches a lesson. So they're on their way to Jerusalem and they're on their way and he's a little bit hungry. He looks off in the distance and he sees a fig tree full of of leaves. And so he's hoping that there would be fruit. Now, people freak out when they get to this story. I don't know why they do. I don't have a problem with it because Jesus is my king. He wants to curse the fig tree and curse the fig tree. He, he, when he's in charge, what he does is what he does. And he's not like me being in charge where he'll mess it all up. So he's going to get it right. So he, he's going to curse the fig tree. Now, the Bible tells us, gives us this little snippet. The disciples heard him. That's important because later on we're going to see the example. When we look at the fig tree, I just want you to understand a little bit about them. The fruit comes to a fig tree first. But it comes as little nodules, like, like little blossoms. You know, like, like when you know whether or not your apple tree is going to bring forth fruit. And you get all those apple blossoms. You with me? And all those apple blossoms, what do they promise? Fruit's coming. Fruit's coming. Well, it's the same way on a, on a fig tree. Only it's not blossoms. It's little nodules. And, and you can even eat those little nodules if you want to. But they're not like a ripened fig. They're just a promise of figs to come. So the way a fig works is the nodule comes first and then the leaves. And as the leaves fill out the tree, it continues to ripen until the figs are ripe. And you're ready to pick the figs. So what we have in this tree is this fullness of, of leaf. And this fullness of growth. And the ideas I look at it of a promise of fruit. Whether it was out of season or not, didn't make any difference. The other fig trees didn't look like this fig tree. This fig tree was all full. So Jesus said, hey, maybe I can get some figs. Well, he knows. He's going over there for this purpose. So he curses the fig tree. In Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. Listen to what God says about it. He says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers like the first fruits on the fig tree in the beginning of the season. What's he talking about? He's talking about those nodules. Okay? The the beginning of the fruit that was to come. So we see this tree promises fruit but delivers none. And as a result, result, it's cursed. And we see the power of Jesus' word, right? When Jesus said, let there be light, what happened? There was light, right? You say, what do you mean when Jesus said? Have you not read Colossians chapter 1? It says, he created all things and without him was nothing made that was made. 
So everything that was created was created through him and by him. So when he says, it happens. Later on, when we go through the gospel, we're going to hear Jesus breathe on the disciples and say, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. What happens when Jesus says, let there be light? There was light, right? So when did the Holy Spirit come to the disciples? Right then, when he said it, it happened. When he says it, it happens. Here, he says, this tree is not ever going to bear fruit. Nobody's ever going to eat of it. He says those words, the disciples hear him. Now he goes on to his day. And as he moves forward, every part of this day that Jesus is experiencing, that he's bringing his disciples through, is showing us the same thing. What it's showing us is hypocrisy in professors. Hypocrisy, play acting, dressing the part, looking like you got it all together, but in reality, you don't have any fruit. So the first place he comes to is the temple. Now, when we look at this cleansing of the temple, John chapter 2 tells us that Jesus' ministry on earth began with a cleansing of the temple. And now we're in the last week, right? We're headed to the cross. We're just a few days from the cross. <clears throat> Jesus ends his ministry with the cleansing of the temple. Three years have passed between those two things, between the cleansing of the temple the first time and this time when we're going to see the cleansing of the temple the second time. What has changed for the people whom Messiah came to and cleaned his house? What has changed for them? Nothing. Three years later, they're the same place they were when they started. You get what I'm saying? So Jesus comes to the temple. Look at it, verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem... And Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught and said to them, It is written, My house. Whose house did he say? Whose house was that? That's the temple, right? Whose house is that? It's God's house, right? Is Jesus confused about who he is? No, he knows who he is, right? In fact, when they crucify him, they're going to crucify him for what purpose? They're going to crucify him for blasphemy. Because what? He was consistently making himself to be God. So he says, look, this is my house. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. For all nations. But you have made it <coughs> a den of thieves. So the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. <clears throat> For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. So, event number two. So we got the cursing of the fig tree. The fig tree's been cursed. It's a hypocritical tree. Promises fruit, nothing there. Jesus comes to the temple. What is it that the temple promises? A place where someone can come and find or have a relationship with, with holy God, right? Almighty God's presence. He said, I choose to dwell in that place. So, if you want to know me, you come to this place. They were divided by multiple courts. But let me give you three of them just to make it simple. You have the, the court of the Goyim. Or the nations. Or sometimes called the court of the Gentiles. And you have the court of the women. And then you have the court of men. Or the court of priests. And so, in... In the area, in fact, if you come with me to 
to Jerusalem, you're going to see, we're going to look in the Tropian Valley, and we're going to see where, where, where one of the prophecies that Jesus talked about, that there would not be one stone left on another there at the Temple Mount. They're going to be all laying, they're still laying in the Tropian Valley, the same way they were when the Romans tipped them over. You can see them there. And as we walk through that Tropian Valley, you're going to see booths. And there in the Tropian Valley, not on the Temple Mount, outside was the place where they would set up booths to sell uh, uh, animals for sacrifice. To give you opportunity to trade your money and to make exchange so that you would have what you needed as you came around and went up the southern steps of the, of the temple in order to go and make your offering. But what happened is the chief priests, they didn't want to have to do that where everybody else does it. So they took the court of the nations, the Gentiles, and they sold their stuff up there. The best sacrifices that you could get, of course, you would buy up there. And the exchange rates and all those things that you could do to exchange your money and do whatever you needed to do so that you could go in and, and worship. Instead of doing it down where everybody else could do it, they had it set up in the court of the Gentiles, in the court of the nations. And so when Jesus cast them out, it cracks me up because people come to this story and they say, there's no way Jesus could have done this without help. Are you kidding me? There's no way God could get everybody out of the court unless somebody helped him. Does God need our help? Yeah, trust me, he doesn't need our help. Remember, he's the one who speaks and it is. So all Jesus has to do on the Temple Mount is say, get out of my house. And what do you think will happen? People get out of his house. They leave. They leave. He overturns the tables. He pushes them out. And he tells us two reasons why he does it, right? The first one, he says, my house is supposed to be what? A house of prayer. And what was the last part of that little phrase? For who? For all nations? See, he's quoting from Isaiah. Actually, hold on. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go to Malachi first. Let me back up. <clears throat> Remember, Jesus came in the beginning, and he came at the end. Messiah was supposed to do this. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, this is what it says. Behold, I send my messenger. So now he's talking about John the Baptist. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, the Messiah, the promised king, will suddenly come into his temple. That means there's not going to be any announcement. Right? When Jesus came the first time, John chapter 2, no announcement, he just shows up. What's he do when he shows up? He cleanses it. Even the messenger of the covenant, <clears throat> in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who will be able to stand when he appears? For he is like the refiner's fire and the launderer's soap. So what's he going to do? He's going to clean up. He's going to point out the things that are sideways, the things that are wrong. He's going to, he's going to clean up. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi. Purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. So Jesus comes, he does that. He comes back, he does it again. Nothing has changed. He says, my house will be a house of prayer. Isaiah 56, 7 says, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Who's speaking in Isaiah? 
Almighty God. Almighty God is saying, look, I'm going to bring the nations, the Gentiles. I'm going to bring them to my house so they can pray. So that they can have a place where they can come to know me, to see me, to, to learn of me. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. So Jesus comes and he cleanses. He says, man, the Jew actually believed somehow that when, when Messiah came, he was going to cleanse the Gentile. He was going to purge the Gentile. He was going to get rid of all them dirty foreigners. He's going to get rid of all those guys who are taking our jobs. He's going to get rid of all those guys who threaten us because somewhere in their deep, dark past, they have a second cousin who was in ISIS. But what did God say? I'm bringing them so they can come to my house. So they can learn about me. So that they can know that my house is a house of prayer. But the attitude of the Jew was to wipe them all out. When Messiah comes, he's going to get rid of them. We're the pure people. Now, have we ever seen that before in history? What do we know? If we don't learn from history, what do we do? So have, have, have we as mankind ever repeated that lesson? Right? Well, we've repeated it, right? We, 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 we can, it, it's easy. To, we just go to Nazi Germany, right? There, there was a pure race. Do we see that same stuff going on today? Look, you may find yourself on one side or the other of all the different arguments, or whether we're talking about illegal aliens or we're talking about the refugee center. You may, you may worry about all that stuff and whatever way you want to, knock yourself out. I'm not afraid. God's still sovereign. Uh, just so you know, I'm probably not ever going to go to Iran. So I won't be able to take the gospel there. But if he brings somebody here, I can bring them to him. And if he is in ISIS, or she is in ISIS, or they in, are in ISIS, cool, better for him to be here than out there doing something. Let's get him saved. Or do you think God needs your help? Is he not able? Is he not able to do the work he needs to do? Is it possible our nation's under judgment? Yeah. And when the last time you spanked your child and he kicked and screamed while that was happening, how'd that work out for him? It's always better just to put your hands on the, on the couch and assume the position and let Papa do his thing, right? Sometimes you just got to take it on the cheek. Grin and bear it. I don't know, maybe we are. Maybe, maybe that's something that we're entering into. But my point is, I am not... Afraid of all that stuff. Jesus is king. How much authority does he have? What does the Bible say? How much authority does Jesus have? Just a little. He don't have very much. But one day when he comes, he'll have authority. What does it say? All authority has been given to me where? In heaven and where else? On earth. That pretty much cover it? Is Jesus king? Or not? And are we living our lives consistently with that? Yeah, we say he's king, is he? Does he have that place in our heart and life? Jesus wants to minister to the goyim. See, when Jesus said that, that's what we were. Goyim. But always 
somewhere along the line, when God has a peculiar people, they're His people that He's chosen, that, that are a part of, of His called, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church, we have to be careful that we don't start thinking, one day Jesus is going to come and purge all them dirty people out. Be careful. Because when, when Israel said that, they were the dirty people. With the broken hearts and the twisted minds because of sin. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that person. I want to have that attitude. It says that in Ephesians 2, 14 and 16. For he himself is our peace, Jesus Christ, who made both one. What does that mean? Who's he talking about? Jew and Gentile, right? He took Jew and Gentile. They were separated by a wall. Right? Remember I told you there was an outer court, the court of the nations and the court of Israel. And, and so they were separated. But what did Jesus do when he came? What's he doing right here? What did he do by his death on the cross? It says, he made both one. He broke down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. So by his death, burial, and resurrection. So that the law of commandments that's contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two. Making peace. How did he make one new man? He said, there is neither barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, Jew or Gentile, man or woman. We are all one, where? In Christ. Christ. See, outside of Christ, uh, everybody's a mess. In Christ, we're one people. We're one people. So how do we get out the mess? Bring them into Christ. And now you're one people. Bring them into Christ. Somewhere along the way, guys, somewhere, I've done it too. Somewhere along the way, we developed this mindset that there's nothing we can do about our world and our culture. It's just going down the drain and there's nothing we can do, so we should surrender. But you're not going to find that. You might find it in our hearts and in our minds, but you're not going to find it in the Word. What did Jesus say in the Word? He said, Occupy till I come. He said, do business till I come. Be busy about the things I've asked you to do. What's the things he's asked us to do? Go into all the world and make disciples of all. All men? Or only special ones? So, you know, let, let the politicians do their political thing. Let the church do her thing. What's her thing? Take the gospel to those who need it. And your world will change. Take the gospel to those who need it. Jesus said, my house shall be a house of prayer. (coughs) So they were supposed to be able to come and pray. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 8 through 11, God through the prophet Jeremiah told the nation of Israel, you guys are hypocritical in your worship, and so I can't hear you anymore. Look at it. Jeremiah chapter 7. Begin at verse 8. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk uh, after other gods whom you do not know? Let me help. Because sometimes we read the Bible and we shut off our brains. So what's he saying? He's saying, you guys just act like everybody else. You say you're mine, but you act like everybody else. You're doing what those guys outside are doing. You do the same things. You tell the same lies. You do the the same actions. 
That's what God through Jeremiah the prophet is telling the nation of Israel here. And then you come stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered because you have to forgive us. We can live our life any way you want to. We're delivered to do all these abominations. That's what he says. Well, you saved us. We're your chosen people. So it really doesn't matter what we do, right? Does this sound familiar? He goes on. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves? See, a den of thieves, when Jesus said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, reaching out, but it's not being that right now. Instead, it's a den of thieves. What's that mean? It's a place full of of sinners doing the same thing as those people out there, but you're not repenting. You're just living in it and acting like it's okay. Look, that was the condemnation from Messiah to the nation of Israel. Do you really think he couldn't make that same condemnation to us? We really think we're somewhere past that. If you are, I, I hope you are. I hope, I hope that you live your life in a place of repentance and wanting to do the things of God. But if not, I pray that you'd hear the cries from a God who loves you and says, Look, you can't do this. Because hypocritical worship is like a tree with leaves and no fruit. It promises, but never delivers. And we don't want to be that. But that's what Jesus finds in His temple. In verse 18 of uh, (coughs) Mark 11, it says, And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy Him. When they heard it, you know what they should have done? I really pray this is how our heart is. Because, because um, uh, uh, there's, there's at least a modicum of possibility that I make somebody mad. And as soon as I make you mad, you stop listening. Who is he to say any of that stuff? What a knucklehead. I ain't got to listen to him. But if that's your response, I just want you to hear that was theirs. They decided, oh, let's figure out how we can get rid of this guy. Let's see how we can destroy him. What should their response have been? To fall down on their knees before Almighty God and ask for forgiveness. And to ask so that, that, so that a renewal can take place. So a revival can take place. So our world can change. But as long as we think that's somebody else's job, God's not going to change anything. It all stays the same. He's calling us for judgment to begin where? Where did it begin for Messiah? In the house of God. That's where it's supposed to begin. To make sure our hearts and our lives are right. It says they they sought to destroy him for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. So when evening had come, he went out of the city. Man, literally the people are hanging on his words. They're hanging on his words. Because the people are blown away. Their hearts are touched and they're thinking, you know, we're right. We're, we're in a bad place and we need, to, we need to have an attitude of repentance. And we need to see... That's the same attitude that people had when John the Baptist came through, wasn't it? When John the Baptist, what did he preach? He preached a message of repentance, right? To go before the Lord. God doesn't want you to come before the Lord and go, oh, I'm just no good. No, God sees past that. That's pride talking. 
when you go before the Lord and you repent, you weep. The Bible says, Esau found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. What does that mean? That God wouldn't forgive him? No, I mean, he didn't care. Until he finishes his, his walk or his life or his journey outside of a relationship with God. Because he didn't want a relationship with God. Because he didn't want to repent. Why? Because he loved his sin. Same old story. Same old story. So they leave. They go outside the city. And, and we have a, a, a run-in with Captain Obvious. Any of you guys have Captain Obvious in your life? We're going to see Captain Obvious here in a minute. It says, now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. That's what I have written there, Captain Obvious. You walk by that tree, yesterday was full of, of branches and leaves, and it looked all promising, but the Lord cursed it. And they walk by today, and it's withered. Why did Peter bring this out? Did he really expect it to wither? I don't think he did. I think they heard Jesus say, Man, I mean, nobody have fruit on you ever again. But they don't, they weren't in a place at that moment to really recognize his authority. We struggle in our prayer life, we struggle in faith, and we struggle with that question his authority. Does he have authority? In our life. Is he the one who is the reason behind? We still got to do the stuff we do. God's put us here with purpose and a place and a, and a job to fulfill and a family to lead. And all those things still happen. But in the midst of it all, is he the authority? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with how much? And what's the next part? Lean not into your own understanding. What do you think that means? Do you think that means to trust in the authority of Almighty God working in your life and, the, and what He gives us in His Word? Folks, I can tell you hundreds, maybe thousands of people who come to me for counseling. They're struggling with an issue that's not a difficult issue. It's not a gray area. It's not a place where we don't know black or white. Jackie, what do you think I should do? Well, here's what the Word of God says. So I can tell real quick whether or not the Word of God is going to be authoritative. Yeah, I don't want to do that. Oh. Well, our counseling session's up. <laughs> so my counsel's pretty easy. Here's what the Word of God says. You either want to do it or you don't. I'm not a psychiatrist. So I can't fix your broken brain. What I can tell you is, well, look, this thing you're doing or this desire you have, that's sin. The Bible says repent of it, head in the other direction. And, th and that's, then we have somewhere to go. But you don't want to do that. So, so Peter doesn't know the authority. Even though Jesus in the storm, remember the storm? Everybody screaming, ah, oh, we're going to die, we're going to die. What did Jesus say? Peace be still. What happened? Everything was still. Does he have authority? Does he have authority over nature? I want you to think about something. It challenged me this week. I'm still kind of working my way through it, so I should be quiet, but I'm not going to be. <coughs> uh, somebody made the statement, there is no neutral ground. Jesus said, you are either for me or against me. 
No middle. No neutral. Think about all the places in our life we have neutral. Let me me pick an easy one. Mathematics. What do you mean, mathematics? That that doesn't have nothing to do with nothing. All I know is Jesus said, there's no middle ground. You're either for me or against me. And that covers everything in life. For me or against me. Now, when that, when that brother shared that with me, I was, I was kind of challenged. I, I backed up a minute and I started thinking about all the places, all the things I think. I mean, it, it can get huge, right? How we live our life and the choices we make and the things we do. And I think of all these things as, as neutrals. They're just neutral. No, they ain't. No neutral. There is only for me or against me. So Peter, he doesn't believe nothing was going to change. So he plays the part of Captain Obvious. So what's Jesus saying in verse 22? So Jesus answered him and said to him, have faith in God. So what's he tell us? Here's the important part. You got to have faith. And this is where the church goes sideways. I don't know why we go sideways, but I'm going to try to help us. Sometimes we think faith is our part. You... Don't have a part. God does it. We think, well, faith is my part. And I just got to, by willpower, build up faith. I got to build up faith. Jesus says, you got to have faith. What's Ephesians 2.8 say? For by grace you have been saved. How? By faith. What's the next phrase? It is what? The gift of God. So, where did we get it? Yeah, look, there's no arguing this point. I'd love to be able to argue it, but you can't. Because in the Greek, it refers back. If you, if you see the it is on the screen, you'll notice it's italics. What does that mean? It means it's not there. It's given for clarification. The grammar of that sentence means that the gift of God that's been given to us is grace and faith. He gives it to us. So he's telling us the importance of faith. Just hang on with me. Hopefully I won't lose you. Hang with me. The importance of faith. We've got to have faith. But it's not faith in faith. And it's not faith in me. And it's not faith in anything else. It's faith where? Faith in God. Faith in God. Faith in God. I've got to have faith in God. One of the ways I can express faith in God is when God is, when He has authority in my life. I'm expressing faith in Him. Trust in Him. Well, think about it like this. Husband and wife. Out on the road somewhere. Husband's driving. The wife is guaranteed positive that they're lost. Anybody ever been through something like that before? I'm sure that's never happened for you guys, but occasionally for me and Kathy. And so Kathy would look over me and say, Jackie, uh, you're lost. We should stop for directions. And I say, I got this. Now, at the next stop sign, when she rolls down her window and shouts at the car next to us, Help! I'm lost! Does she really believe? Does she really trust me? No. She doesn't really trust me. And uh, it's one of my weaknesses. I don't like to ask for directions. <clears throat> I'll go around in a circle for a day trying to figure out where I'm supposed to go. 
the point of it is not for husbands and wives to get in fights now and go home and say, I told you, you don't trust me when you do that. No. The point is, it, it illustrates how we are toward the Lord. When God says, trust in me, trust in me, trust in me. And we're constantly leaning into our own understanding and developing our own plans. Then the question is, are we trusting? Is our faith in God or, or is that faith, that gift that God's given us, that faith, are we putting it in us? Are we putting it somewhere it shouldn't be? Or are we keeping faith in God? What if it doesn't make any sense? What if my circumstances are all screwed up and they don't make any sense? Surely I should lean into my own understanding then, right? What does it say? Trust in the Lord with how much of your heart? Majority? Two-thirds. Three-quarters. So you think all means all? Oh, so, so it's supposed to be all my heart. Trust in the Lord with all my heart. Not leaning in my own understanding. I'm trusting Him. I'm trusting Him. The important thing in our walk, in our prayer, in our living out the life He's given us is to live it out by faith. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God, right? So if it's impossible to please God without faith, and God gives it to me, isn't that what that verse said? He gives me faith. So He gives me that faith. So He's giving me what I need to please Him. Right? But that faith's got to be in Him. Not me. It's got to be in Him, not my plans. It's got to be in Him and not some other thing. It's got to be in Him. He is able. Amen? You believe God is able? He is able. So let's look. It says in verse 23 of Mark 11, For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain... <laughs> be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. And churches around the world take this and, and butcher it. Butcher it. Oh, so I just got to believe I'm going to have whatever I want. And so I get my TV show and I call myself Crefo Dollar. And I say, I need a $60 million jet plane. And I'm claiming it and I'm believing it and it's going to come. Yeah, that's not what it's talking about. What am I supposed to believe in? The word I spoke? Where am I supposed to put my faith? I'm supposed to put my faith in God, right? Put my faith in, not in the words I said. Believe that you will receive it. Why am I believing it? Because we don't just pull a verse out of the Bible. We look at what the Bible has to say. The whole Bible. What's the whole Bible have to say? Whatever we ask in His name. In the character, according to the character of God. That means we're asking according to His character. Uh, there's several things that can hinder our prayers. And we'll look at those in a minute. But, but we want to have the right attitude that says, My faith is placed in God. My faith is placed in Him. In Matthew chapter 17, look, we got a, we got a little side story that Jesus wants us to see. Matthew 17, 19 through 21. You remember the story. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? Remember the, the boy had the demon they couldn't cast out? Jesus said, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, If you have faith as a mustard seed, You will say to this mountain, from, Move from here to there and it will move, And nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. What was their problem? Why weren't they having the prayer? Why was their prayer... For deliverance for this young man not answered because of unbelief. Was it unbelief in, in their own ability? Was it unbelief in God's? Was it, was it a lack of faith in faith? 
Or was it a lack of faith in God, or trusting in their own, or trusting that, that they maybe had the power to do what they were trying to do? So, <clears throat> Jesus says, it's unbelief is a problem. It hinders what we're trying to do. You've got to walk in faith, in that faith. Where's that faith? It's not something I work up. God gave it to me, I put it in Him. God give it to me, I put it in Him. God give it to me, I put it in Him. Not in me. Not faith in faith. Not faith in words of a prayer. Not faith in a special kind of church. Faith in Christ. Faith in the Lord. Trusting in Him. Faith in Him. In what about Him? In His authority. How much authority has been given to Him? All. So if I ask something according to His name or according to His will, and I trust Him implicitly, I believe Him, then I'm going to get what it is I've asked for. Because what I'm asking for lines up with what He's doing. Now what the Bible teaches, where do I get faith? Faith comes from what? Romans ten seventeen. right? Faith comes from hearing. <coughs> hearing the Word of God. That word hearing, faith comes from hearing, can also be respond. Faith comes... Re- from responding to the word. Responding to the word. What, what do I do when I hear the word? I believe it. Huh. Well, let's take an easy one, right? Let's take an easy one. Let's see how faith comes from the word. My responding to the word brings about faith in my life. How's that happen? Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen are not made up of things which are visible. Bible said that more than 2,000 years ago. Just because you know it to be true now doesn't mean it wasn't true back then when the Bible said it. By faith we believe. We believe. Why do we believe it? Because the Word of God said it. Because the Word of God is authoritative. Is Jesus Christ authoritative? Is the Word of God authoritative? Is your relationship with God authoritative? Or is it just something that you do on Sunday patiently trying to wait until you can get to the football game? Or is it authoritative? Is it real? Are we just trees with leaves? Or do we have fruit? See, we don't know who God is unless God reveals himself to us. How do you know who God is? Because he chose to reveal himself. How did he reveal himself? Through his word. If God doesn't reveal himself... Maybe we, don't, we, we wouldn't know Him in the way we can know Him as we read His Word. So we go to His Word. Faith grows. We put our trust and our faith and our hope in Him. The Bible tells us that I need to renew my mind, right? How do I renew my mind? By the Word of God. I put the Word of God in and it renews my mind. Gets my mind back on track. Gets my, my mind again able to focus. So I want those things to happen. It's the Word of God having authority in my life. It's me putting authority in Jesus Christ that He is who He said He was. And I'm going to follow Him and I'm going to be who He's asking me to be. But are there hindrances? When we talk about prayer, are there hindrances to our prayer? If I had a nickel for every time somebody said, man, we need to pray about that. I tried that. Well, you don't try that, brother. You either live in it or get out of it. Life is prayer. Not I tried that. Ain't some 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 you know click on your computer. You click on and it didn't work. Oh, try something else. No man, you either are a person of prayer. 
He said, my house shall be a house of prayer. Right? My house. Where's his house today? It ain't no temple. Where's his house? Oh, so our bodies are the house of God now? The sanctuary of God? The temple of God is our bodies? So what, what did he say? My house should be what? A house of prayer, didn't he? My house should be a house of prayer. For what? For all the nations. Is that how his house is? Or are we a tree with leaves on it and no fruit? And if we are, look, you don't have to wait for God to curse you. All you got to do is repent. But see, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. Hindrances to our prayer. 1 Peter 3.7. All the men in here will love this one. 1 Peter 3.7. Husbands, dwell with them, your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Why? So that your prayers would not be hindered. That word hindered is very kind in the English. In the Greek, it literally means your prayers will stop at your lips. You honoring your wife? Because if you're not, God says, I ain't listening. James 4, 2 and 3 says, You lust or you desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and you can't obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you do not, and you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you want to spend it on your own pleasure. Sometimes when we pray, it's just for our own pleasure. I want what's best for me. This would be easy for me. This would be a better job for me. This would be a better way, God, for you to do this. Instead of saying, God, I want to be your vessel through whatever this struggle is. But when when Cindy Hagerman was dying of cancer, I was in the room when they told her. I was there when she prayed. And she said, God, I want to be a witness for you in my cancer. I want to live for you while I die. That was when she prayed. Her first prayer was not, heal me, take it all away. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to go through all the hardship. It wasn't to spend it on herself. It was to spend it for Him. That's the attitude God wants us to have. Ask according to His character. Ask in His name and you will receive it. How about this one? Psalm sixty-six, eighteen. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. You guys know what that means. If I hold on to that little sin I love so much in my heart, God says, I'm not listening to you. If you're treasuring sin, God says, I don't hear you. The only words I'm going to hear from your mouth is, forgive me. And until those words are said, I don't hear you. I can't hear you. If I hold on to sin in my heart. So I want you to think about all the things that are going on. They see the, <clears throat> the tree cursed. The temple's been cleansed. The Pharisees and the scribes, they want to kill him. I just want you to see all the hypocrisy around Jesus. All the trees with leaves and no fruit. And where are they headed? To the curse. They're going to get what they're asking for. What are they asking for? An eternity without God. He says in, in verse 25, Mark 11, Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. So Jesus is telling, here's another thing that can impede your prayer, right? If you have anything against him, forgive him. 
so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespass. Has God forgiven us? Is God king? Is God have authority in your life? If that's all true, yes, God has authority in my life. Yes, He is my king. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. I'm following Him. If that's true, you have no right to hold unforgiveness. At all. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? So at least have the, 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 the truthfulness to say, yep, He's not my Lord. He's not my King. But isn't that what we want Him to be? Isn't that what we desire? So I, have to, I, I don't have a right to hold on to nothing. I don't have a right to hold on to nothing. Because I surrender. Didn't we sing that earlier in the song? I surrender. I'm coming to you and I'm surrendering everything. All my broken pieces, all my mess, all the junk that I got in my life. I'm surrendering. Well, if you're surrendered, you don't own nothing. It ain't yours no more. Whose is it? Scott's. That means the hurt that happened to you. It ain't yours no more. Whose is it? God's. You give it all. He wants all of you, all the dirty little nooks and crannies. Surrender it all. Let it all go. We've got to forgive. Ephesians 4.32. Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So isn't that what the, the plain word of God teaches us, right? We've got to forgive. So then he leaves that place. They're, they talk about the, the trees withered. There's the curse. The object lesson is complete. The temple's been cleansed. The scribes and the Pharisees want to kill him. Now we're going to bump into them. But Jesus... <clears throat> or then they again came to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came. And they said to him, By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you authority to do these things? So now there's a question of whether or not he has the authority. By what right do you say this is your house? Who are you to clean this up? They want to know. They want to know. By what authority? So look at Jesus. Jesus answered and said to them, I ask you one question. Then answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Okay, let me... I just want, I don't want you to miss what he's saying. Sometimes, <clears throat> when we look at the Bible, when we come to Bible speak, we miss it. So, they come to Jesus. By what authority are you cleansing this temple? By what authority are you doing the things that you're doing? Jesus says, I'll answer you that question, you answer me one. John the Baptist, where did his authority come from? Heaven or earth? That's the question. Where did John the Baptist's authority come from? Heaven or earth? <coughs> so we look. It says they reasoned among themselves. Wait a minute. What did Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say? Trust where? Trust in the Lord with all my heart and then do what? Don't lean in my own understanding. So they reason among themselves. What are they doing? Are they trusting God? Are they coming before God and saying, Lord, you're right, we should have fallen in repentance? No, that's not their heart, it's not their desire. They reject Him. That's not their heart. They're not, so they reason among themselves. They say, well, if we say from heaven, He'll say, why didn't you believe Him then? What did John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin 
from the whole earth. John pointed to Jesus and said, Messiah. Well, if we say he comes from heaven, then he'll say, why don't we believe what John said? But if we say he comes from men, it's earthly, then all the people will be mad at us because they all know he's a prophet. So, they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. Was that true? Oh, man. That just... They knew. They knew. We don't know. That's not the truth. That's not the truth. That's not the truth. Because people who reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, according to Romans chapter 1, all do the same thing. What is it? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They hold it down like a beach ball. I'm not going to let anybody know that this is the truth. I'm going to hold it down. I'm not going to let anybody know that John the Baptist really came from God. I don't want them to know, so I'm going to hold this down. I'm going to suppress the truth. In what? Unrighteousness. Why? Why are they suppressing the truth? Because I love my sin. Trees with leaves and no fruit that are cursed by God are trees that have a promise, but they never deliver because they won't repent. They won't say the truth. Romans chapter 1 says, every man knows God exists. It's not a condition where people don't know God exists. They say they suppress the truth. That's what the Word of God says. Is it authoritative or not? If it's authoritative, that's true. So why are they suppressing the truth? Why do they walk around saying God doesn't exist? Because they love their sin. That's what the Bible says. Don't lean into your own understanding. Don't go, I I don't think that's true. Either God's telling the truth or it's all garbage. Throw it all out. If somebody came up to you and said, I don't believe in words. Do you believe them? Brother, you just used like five of them right there. I don't believe in words. That's five words. What do you mean you don't believe in words? But there's a lot of people who do the same thing. I don't believe in God. I don't believe God exists. Oh, you know He does. You're holding down the truth. You know He's here. But you love the sin. What is it that Jesus is calling all men everywhere to do? Repent and believe. Repent. Of your sin. Let it go. Otherwise. We're like a fig tree. Full of leaves. We've heard what Jesus has said. But we're not willing to let it have an effect on us. What's the effect he's looking for? Us feeling bad? That's not what he's looking for. Us feeling sad or shedding tears? That's not what he's looking for. What's he looking for? Honest attitude of repentance. A real attitude of surrender. Because God is mighty to save to the uttermost. And He wants to do that. But guys, churches today are filled with a lot of people who got better things to do. And they think I'm punching a card, I'm marking time, I'm doing my thing. But look, if you haven't repented of your sin, and you don't put your faith, the gift that God's given you, in Him... What do you got? It isn't a relationship. 
It's something else. So hear what Jesus is saying. He came into the temple not to make people feel bad, to call them to repentance. He comes into our lives not to make us feel bad, to call us to repentance. He goes into the world not to make the world feel bad, but to what? To call them to repentance. And that's what he's looking for from us. It's my prayer that that's what the Holy Spirit's going to get. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before you. We pray, God, that your spirit would do a perfect work. Lord, you declare that your word will accomplish what it's sent to do. So I pray that your word would go forth and touch our hearts. That we don't play the game of, of church. We don't pretend to be a tree with fruit. If we ain't got no fruit, if we're a barren tree, if we don't have any leaves, I want to pretend... I'm something I'm not. What I want to do is fall down before the God who knows me and loves me and cares about me. And I want to stop trying to suppress the truth. I want to stop trying to hold on to my sin. I want to let all that go and come before you in repentance. And ask you to forgive me. And stop pretending like God doesn't know what's going on in my life. If I'm holding on to iniquity, if I regard it, if I treasure sin in my heart... That I need to come before you and repent. If I haven't honored my wife, I need to come before you and, and repent. That's the attitude of life you're looking for in a believer. Not someone who, who came forward at church one time and said a prayer, but someone who lives a life of prayer, who's consistently going before you and repenting, who wants to see the Spirit move in his life in power, who lives a real life out before men. And is able then to <coughs> share the truth of who you are, God, with men who don't know you. We don't live in fear. We live in faith. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love and of power and a sound mind. So we don't fear all the things everyone else fears. But we want to see the power of God change men. Because it's the power of God that changes men. But how does it change man? It's when a man coming before God doesn't come before God and say, Lord, you're sure lucky to have me and I guess I've considered all these different things and I'm finally going to let you come into my heart. No, the man comes before God, falls on his face and says, God, forgive me. That's the man. Jesus said, two men went to pray. One said, I thank you, Lord, I'm not a dog or a woman or like that sinner over there. But the other man beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, that one left that place justified. God, I pray that would be the attitude of your church as you call us to revival. As you call us to be able to make a difference in our culture. As you call us to realize there's a lot of fights going on. And a lot of evil in this world. And I just keep sitting back waiting for something to happen. And all the while, you're saying to me, I put you there for such a time as this. God, I pray that we would hear the, the, the lesson of the fig tree. And we would say, I don't want to be that tree. 
I don't want to be fake. I don't want to pretend. I want to be real. I can only be who I am. But I want to be who I am in Christ. And in order to be who I am in Christ, I must repent. I must surrender. You need to be my Savior and my King. So God, I pray you do that perfect work in our hearts this morning as we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.